The following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2008 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Folks, we've got to dig into a text of the Word of God or we're in danger of slip sliding into something strange and bizarre. Ezekiel 38, I'll start reading at the first verse. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh. I'm in the New King James. Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his troops, the house of Togarma from the far north, and all its troops. Many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be visited in the latter years. You will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. And they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud. You and all your troops and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass, the thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and have neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. On Israeli television, in the last several weeks, there has been a serious discussion as to whether Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe the imminent World War III. Interesting. 
These chapters are found as the prophet Ezekiel turns hopefully to Israel's future. In 36, the return from the nations and the promise of God to give them a new heart and to put his spirit in them yet to be fulfilled. Chapter 37, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, first coming together physically, bone to his bone, being fulfilled. And then when he will put his spirit into them, life from the dead, they rise up and stand on their feet an exceeding great army yet to be fulfilled. But here in 38 and 39, one of the great wars of the end time, an invasion of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, by a great colossus of powers collaborating together descending like a cloud upon the land of Israel. They are led, Gog Magog, by Rosh, the prince of Meshech and Tubalsk, Moscow and Tubalsk, the capital of Siberia. Rosh is the Hebrew word. Even Josephus in his Antiquities, written about the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD says, Gog and Magog, with Rosh, their prince of Meshech and Tubalsk, these are the Scythian peoples who live up in the Caucasus in Russia today. We have artifacts from the Caucasus in Moscow and in St. Petersburg for that matter. The old rabbis always spoke of the Gog-Magog war described here as taking place before Messiah would return. Gesenius, who is our authority in his classic Hebrew Chaldee lexicon says unequivocally, Rosh is a reference to the Russians. Even Voltaire, the skeptic, in his Dictionary of Philosophy, in tracing the genealogy of the nation, says the descendants of Gog, Magog, and Rosh are the Russians. I think there is evidence. Fascinatingly, the Soviet Encyclopedia, now somewhat defunct with the collapse of the Soviet Union, indicated in an article the first reference to the Rus, R-U-S, is to be found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ilya Weissel, the well-known contemporary Nobel laureate 
a Holocaust survivor, he says, I am looking next for the Gog-Magog war of Ezekiel 38 and 39, which must take place before Messiah returns and saves his people. What happens here takes place, as we read in the passage, in the latter years. Verse 16, in the latter days. This is a fierce military engagement which takes place at the end of history. Russia has allies. What I'm describing to you now is what hundreds of brethren Bible scholars in the 19th century described as the war Russia leads at the end of the age. This is C.I. Schofield. This is Arno Clemens Gabeline. This is Wilbur Smith, my mentor in seminary. This is Harry Rimmer and his great book, The Coming War with Russia and Israel. They have collaborators, allies. This is a movement, although led and instigated by Russia. And remember, with the collapse of the Soviet Union into the 16 Commonwealth of Independent States, six of whom are Islamic. Some of my friends said, yeah, 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 yeah. Where is your Russia as a great world power? My friends, history shows us Russia is never more dangerous than when she is down. And the collapse of the Soviet Union, you remember Gorbachev, perestroika, glasnost, a number of reasons for the collapse of the Soviet Union, not the least of which was her vicious anti-Semitism. She went down. Now she's on the way up, led by a very dangerous figure, Vladimir Putin, a sinister figure who wears a cross, who is devoted to the Russian Orthodox Church, is driving out evangelicals. Doors are closing now, as they have been open now for years. Doors are closing. But their possession of oil and gas is putting them into a very controlling situation in Europe and throughout the world. Why is it all our enemies have the oil and the gas? Now among their allies, my friends, here I believe is where Islamofascism, jihadism, radical Islam is to be found in prophecy. It's in this passage. Some like George Otis have taught that so ominous is radical Islam, it will be the great antagonist at the end of the age. It will be Gog and Magog. No evidence for that. Folks, 1.2 billion Muslims in the world. Not all are violent people. 
there are some pacific and ironic Muslims, particularly among the Sufis, the mystical Muslims, the Pentecostal Muslims, the whirling dervishes who speak in tongues. Although it was the Sufis who killed General Gordon of Khartoum in the 19th century. But we have reference made here to a number of nations who will join together. We have Persia, we have Ethiopia, possibly Sudan, we have Libya, we have Togarma, definitely Turkey, in which there is a great internal tension right now as to the degree radical Islam will control Turkey, which has been a secular Muslim state since the 1920s. The fact is, in my judgment, Islam is a violent religion. Mohammed himself was a viciously violent man. He visited Jerusalem. He was a camel trader before the Quran was lowered to him on a sheet from heaven. By the way, Ezekiel 38 is referred to in the Quran. The Quran speaks of the Gog Magog Rosh combine of nations which will create much mischief in Israel. That is in the Quran. But my friends, from the beginning, Islam has been a super aggressive, anti-Christian, anti-Judaistic power with all of its components, Sunnis and Shia and all the rest of it. Who drove Christians out of the Middle East? It was Islam. Who drove Christians out of North Africa? They aspired to move up into Europe. They captured Spain, but in 732, in the Battle of Tours, Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, held them back at the Pyrenees. That was as far as they could go. Twice, vast Islamic hordes have moved up, conquering parts of the Balkans. No wonder Bosnia-Herzegovina is a Muslim country with large Muslim minorities in a country like Bulgaria. They moved up to the gates of Vienna twice in 1529, a very important factor in the Protestant Reformation with the destabilization of Europe in the wake of the Muslim hordes. They did not conquer Vienna. And again in 1663, they came up poised to move into and conquer all of Europe, but a huge snowstorm set them back. But my friends, although turned back at the Pyrenees and turned back at Vienna, the Muslims are moving into Europe these days in another mode of conquest. Malmö, one of the great cities in southern Sweden, is 47% Kurdish Muslim. 
In Coventry, the automobile manufacturing center of England, there are more Muslims in their mosques on Friday than there are Christians of all categories in churches on Sunday. The story is shifting very ominously. This whole colossus spearheaded by Rosh, prince of Meshik and Tubolsk, with her Islamo-fascist allies, all of these nations coming together, united by a desire. Notice, they will, verse 8, in the latter years come into the land the land of those brought back from the sword. This is Israel, of course, gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate until the Jews returned to claim the land which was their patrimony. The land was desolate and bare. There has never been a Palestinian state in history. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. This has been a refuge. The enemy will ascend against them. I will go up against a law of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people. My friends, have you ever heard of a, an Israeli suicide bomber? I mean, here is something in my judgment which is exceedingly pathological, that explosives will be strapped to the bodies of children and women and sent as suicide bombers, given prizes by Saddam Hussein. I'm glad he's gone. They were paid $10,000 apiece to go in and blow themselves up with many others. And Israel has built some walls. Oh, that's a terrible thing. That's some, but doesn't it say here, unwalled? This is to say they are basically very vulnerable. These walls are not high. The United States is building walls in Texas and in Arizona and New Mexico and California. Would you say these are a great threat to world peace? Do they keep anybody out? <laughs> the Chinese built the Great Wall of China to keep the Mongols out of China. Did they succeed? They did not. Now you ask me an interesting question. It describes how that in verse 4 they come with their horses and horsemen. Does this mean there will be no battle tanks, no mechanized artillery? I have dear friends, God bless them. And uh, if you think I'm wrong on this, please pray for me that I'll see the light on it. But uh, I'm praying for you that you'll see the light. <laughs> now listen, folks. We believe we read the Bible like we read all literature. The plain, simple, natural meaning of the text 
seeking to find the author's intention literal where possible. It is not always possible to be literal, and I think this is figurative language. You know, of all people, you know, we don't believe that the mountains will jump for joy and the trees clap their hands. This is metaphorical for joy. It's a figure of speech. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the true vine. Did he mean he was a grapevine? Well, of course. Now look, dear people, of all of us in Christendom, we should be the last people to insist on an absolute literality when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he's speaking figuratively. Of course he is. This represents my body. This represents my blood. And when we read in Isaiah 2:4 that in the millennium they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Does that mean the tractors have been replaced in the fields? No, it is to say figuratively there will be peace. Isn't that what the passage means? Look, I think the use of horses and bucklers and spears is figurative in this passage. It is not literal. If you feel I'm wrong, add me to your prayer list, please. This great military colossus moves down on little Israel. Now, folks, some say this is Armageddon. Not so. Armageddon is when all nations will gather against Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation, the seven years. Zechariah 12, Joel 3. When this military colossus moves down upon Israel, as described here in Ezekiel 38, there is a protest. It is a feeble protest, I grant you. But there are those who raise a question. What are you doing? Look at verse 13. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? There is a third party here. My friends, I am convinced it is basically the European Federation. This, these are the ten toes of the vision in Daniel 2. These are the ten horns on the fourth beast of Daniel 7. Folks, the center is going to be Europe, and the Antichrist will emerge from what is now a somewhat floundering European Union. You can cross off the United Nations. They do nothing are totally impotent. They're doing nothing for Iran. Did you notice the Security Council? China and Russia, with their veto power, vetoed a condemnation of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. We can't even get a condemnation of the dehumanizing atrocities in Zimbabwe from the United Nations. The United Nations has, has nothing to do with the Iranian 
they can't mount anything. It is the European Union which has led in the sanctions which have been applied up to this point, five different steps, apparently futile, but increasingly severe. A huge French company has just withdrawn contract from Iran. Remember that Ahmadinejad is losing some popularity in Iran. The Iranian people are not experiencing prosperity despite their oil. 70% of the Iranian people have no serious religious interests. It is the group, the ayatollahs, the mullahs, and the imams at the top who are enforcing rigid Sharia law. And this is exasperating to many Iranians, especially to younger Iranians. They're very uneasy about these developments and their increasing isolation in the world community. Now this great colossus moves down as is described here and my friends, out of the far north they come, a great company, verse 15, and a mighty army against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days I will bring you against my land. By the way, you want to see a figure of speech? Look back in verse 4. I'll turn you around and put hooks in your jaws. Are those literal hooks in their jaws? Or is that a figure of speech for God's compulsion? Oh, of course it is the latter. God brings them up, allows this to take place, making even the wrath of men to praise him there is a most alarming invasion taking place. The protests of the West are raised, but no attention is given to them, folks. The European Union at this point, out of which the Antichrist will come, is helpless. Notice merchants of Tarshish. Wish we had time to give you a Bible study on Tarshish. You look up every reference to Tarshish and their young lions. Who are they? My friend, this is Western Europe, Tarshish, the merchants. Ezekiel 27, 12 tells us about Tarshish and Tin. Tin, Britain, the Baratanic Islands, the Tin-bearing Islands. Unfortunately, by this time, the United States is a negligible factor in Bible prophecy. I don't find the United States moving decisively in Bible prophecy. Folks, in the first place, in the rapture, there are a lot of Americans that are going to be taken up to heaven. And this country is going to be knocked for a loop. And what is more, this nation is facing a great judgment. And it's going to render us absolutely impotent. But there is a Western Confederacy, folks. This is the center of it. Let's not lose our perspective from the book of Daniel, chapters 2 and 7. And uh, this Western Confederacy raises questions but is powerless. So the invasion continues and 
what takes place is God destroys the Russian Islamo-Fascist combine on the mountains of Israel like the soldiers and armies of Egypt were destroyed by God in the Red Sea. Listen, this, this is going to be the end of Russia as a world power. She will be no challenge to the Antichrist. Islamo-fascism will be no challenge to the Antichrist as he will come out of the shadows of the defeat of this great army. This is why I am convinced this battle will follow the rapture. I don't think we're going to be here to see it. I cannot speak with absolute dogmatism on that point. Folks, God will send fire. Look what we read in the 22nd verse. I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Look at verse 6 of chapter 39. I will send fire. Is this a reference to some thermonuclear detonation? Will you notice that it will take seven years, verse 9 of chapter 39, to clean up, to cleanse the area of military encounter. Seven years to detoxify the area. Fascinating seven years, isn't it? When you think of the de detached seven years of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, I go into all of this in my history of prophecy. Those seven years, here's seven years again, the tribulation period. It will take all of that time to detoxify the area. Folks, Russia and Islamofascism, they're going to bite the dust. There are three reasons why Islamofascism will be frustrated in their desire to conquer the world. First, they're in a terrible time warp. Folks, they never had a sustained renaissance as a movement. Many Muslims will not allow a cucumber and a tomato to be found on the same plate. Folks, they're living in a time warp. There was a brief renaissance in Spain when Averroes, the mathematician, remember, if you've been to the Alhambra in Spain, if you've been to the Taj Mahal, these are Muslim projects. They had a brief spurt of renaissance, but Averroes was erased because he had an interest in Aristotle. They're in a time warp where, apart from this maverick Pakistani who sold atomic secrets to North Korea and to Iran. There, there is the culprit right there, that Pakistani who has run loose. Islamofascism will not conquer because, too, although they will unite occasionally, they are torn by bitter internal strife. Only 15% Shia, that's the most radical group, but they are mainly in the Middle East, the Shiites. 
Straits of Hormuz, 40% of the oil of the world passes through. The Shia are around on all sides. They're the ones that have the radical eschatology. They believe, Ahmadinejad believes the 12th Iman is living. He is living in a well in Iran and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad goes to the well and gets advice from him every day. Well, la-ti-da. Good rock. But the third reason why Islamofascism is destined to bite the dust is its vicious anti-Semitism. Folks, in my judgment, before this battle, as described so vividly and so poignantly in Ezekiel 38 and 39, will take place very quickly after the rapture and will be an occurrence which catapults the Antichrist, the man of sin, into great prominence because into this chaos, out of the Western Confederacy, rises the beast out of the sea who will rule and reign most despotically and cruelly during the seven years. Folks, but we're out of here. Oh, I hear someone say, yes. But it was John Nelson Darby who invented the idea of the rapture in the 19th century. Hassenpfeffer. It is not the truth. Believers have looked for the imminent return of Jesus. We know not the day nor the hour since our Lord spoke those words. The apostles believed in imminence. The early church believed in imminence, and in our worldliness we have at times lost sight of it. But there have been those, this can be traced historically, folks, let's get the facts front and center. There have been those who have believed in a two-stage second coming. Ephraim the Syrian in the fourth century, Dulcino in the twelfth century, Spainer, the great pietist from Strasbourg in the 17th century. Thomas Shepard, the first president of Harvard, Increase Mather, the pastor of Old North Church. Morgan Edwards, the evangelist of New England. I could go on long before John Nelson Darby saw this so clearly and wrote about it so lucidly. There were those who said, there will be a coming for his saints, which is signless. Nothing has to happen before that. And there will be a coming with his saints seven years later, many signs of the approaching day of the Lord. Maranatha, he's coming soon, folks. But this also is coming. I thank God for Ezekiel 38 and 39. Dear Lord, your word is precious. How we treasure it. And I ask your forgiveness for doing such a shoddy job in expounding and digging into this great text. Its wonders are luminescent and leap off the inspired page. And we pray, dear God, you will quicken within our hearts the longing 
for the blessed hope, the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.